Welcome to The Pursuit, a podcast produced by the Junior Board of the Chicago Midwest Chapter of the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences, otherwise known as NATIS. We are a group of emerging media professionals seeking insight from the leaders in our fields. I am Nahar Gignaja, a sound designer and recent graduate of Northwestern University, and your host for this episode. Today we'll get to hear from Kelly O'Sullivan, a Chicago actress, writer, and now director. Her film St. Francis, which she wrote and starred in, has accrued 17 nominations and won 11 awards, including the Audience Award at South by Southwest 2019. As she moves into directing, I've been fortunate enough to be a part of the sound team on her upcoming short, My Summer Vacation. I can't wait to learn from her experience. Let's jump right in. I just consented. Okay, great. (laughs) To be recorded, so we're already doing well. (laughs) Awesome. So the first question we always ask is, what was the moment you knew you wanted to be an actress or a writer? Yeah, it always feels sort of silly to talk about because it was so long ago, but I grew up in North Little Rock, Arkansas. And when I was six years old, my kindergarten teacher told my mom, like, she has so much energy. She does all these crazy voices on the playground. You should go take her to audition to be in a play at this local children's theater. And the audition was that you had to sing happy birthday while you skipped across the stage at the same time. And after that, I was like, I'm hooked. <laughs> there was, there was, there, I caught the bug just from singing happy birthday and skipping across the stage. Um, no, but this was a, in a production of Little Women. And I, rem- I think I was like the youngest person in the cast and the people who were playing like the March girls were like 12 to 16. And I thought that they were the coolest people in the world. And I just felt that sense of community that I had never felt before in my long six years and knew immediately that I wanted to be a part of something that was expressive and also really company based, something that was all about collaboration and that felt like playing, but getting to play on a team that didn't involve sports. Um, I always think like theater was sort of my religion and my sports experience that it it kind of ticked both of those boxes. And so I caught it really, really young. And I used to say like, well, I'll get sick of this and like, I won't want to do it forever. And then I just never did get sick of it. And so I continued doing theater all through high school. You know, I did all the like musicals and then I went to Northwestern for theater and loved it the entire time and just kept going. And like, so did you always kind of want to do the same thing then? Do you want to be an actress the whole time? Or did you also want to be a writer from the beginning? How did those things come about? Yeah, I was so satisfied being an actor for so long. And it was kind of one of those things that after a while, I was like, well, this is where my skill set is. Like, this, this is what I do. I never really thought about being a writer because I had so much more experience as an actor. And then it, it was only later in my career as I started to be a little more dissatisfied with the roles that I was being given that I thought, I think there's more to this. Like, I think I've sort of narrowed down my options before I needed to. And that's when I started, you know, I kind of poked my head out of the sand and looked around and figured out, oh, you can have a lot more agency if you are a writer and if you're a director, because as an actor, unless you're in the top 2% of famous actors and you have choice, for the most part, you don't have a lot of agency in your own career. And so, Yeah, for a long time, I thought acting was going to be it. And it's really just been in the past, I would say, five to six years that I've started branching out. And I'm really glad that I have. 
Yeah, I do have a question then, because yeah, I yeah. confess that I, I do have that feeling sometimes when I watch TV and an actor delivers the most stupid line I've ever heard, and I'm like, yes. wow, they just had to eat that one, didn't they? Totally, and yeah. there were probably 60 other actors who auditioned for that stupid line who really oh. wanted that part. And that's the, that's. <laughs> I always find that to be so depressing when it's like you look at this stupid, you know, whatever the commercial's for, like yeah. a Pepto-Bismol commercial, and you think about the hundreds of other actors getting ready, driving to the audition, saying that stupid line and one actor was chosen. And I started having the feeling of like, is this really my childhood dream? Like, is this really what I worked so hard to train for, for all those years? And it can feel like this trap. It can feel like, oh, this, I, I guess I just have to keep doing this forever. But then you did poke your head out of the sand and look around and see that you could have more agency and... Fortunately, you did. So so what were the signals that made you realize that? I think I started seeing more, especially women in the industry, take on more positions of power. And so I was really inspired by Issa Rae, who was, you know, writing her own stuff, and Greta Gerwig, who was writing and performing her own stuff. And just thinking, oh, okay, I'm, I now see examples of women doing this. And it felt very daunting. It felt like I didn't go to school for any of this. I have no idea what I'm doing. But also as an actor, I had read a good number of scripts. And so I knew, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I sort of knew the difference between dialogue that at least when I read it as an actor auditioning that I was excited to say versus the things that I was like, how is an actor going to make these lines work? And so I started just using that skill set that was still very underdeveloped but yeah very very guided by women in the industry who were no longer content with just being actors and who said okay well I can do I can do a couple of different things like I can write my own material and perform that and direct it and and yeah started from there awesome what made you settle in Chicago for um acting and writing versus like LA or the other cities yeah, well, I was very fortunate in that I did the school at Steppenwolf in between my sophomore and junior year at Northwestern. And so I was connected to some casting directors and I got an agent at that time. And right out of school, I got cast in a show at Steppenwolf. And so it was a very, it that transition just made sense to me that it was like, I have connections here. This is the kind of theater I want to be doing. And also Northwestern had had a showcase in both New York and LA that I went to. And from that, I met with an agent who very quickly told me, well, you know, you're cute, but you're not beautiful. So you'll always play the best friend. And I was like, oh, if that's what going to New York and LA yeah. <laughs> is going to categorize me as, then I was really content staying in a place where I felt like I was being challenged, a place where I was growing my connections. And I didn't want to, I didn't want the cost of living to force me into things that I didn't want to do. Like I didn't want to have to work as a server for 50 hours a week. Um, and sort of like, like, yeah, and have my soul crushed. Um, it felt, it felt like it just made so much sense to me emotionally and intellectually to stay in a place that was already opening doors for me. Yeah, I see. So yeah, like so Chicago really was already opening doors for you and like, yeah, it's like, I, yeah, I should stay here and not <laughs> run away from it. Yeah, it was like somebody's paying me to act and they're being really nice to me and not telling me that I'm not beautiful. So <laughs> they just didn't comment on my, my appearance. And I think that's something that's really uniquely Chicago is, is nobody who's a model 
sticks around here <laughs> because they know that they can do better in New York and LA. And then were you also like a, when you wrote St. Francis, part of that was based on the fact that you were a nanny for a while, right? It's like, was that after college or was that, yeah, when was that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was a nanny in my, I would say late twenties. And so, I mean, I still, it's not like I graduated college and then I was just like set for forever. I still had to have side hustles. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I wrote St. Francis sort of, you know, based on two real experiences, which was being a nanny and then having an abortion. And those didn't happen at the same time in my real life. But when I started thinking about what would I want to write about, I, I knew that there was something there in that juxtaposition of those two stories, especially considering the way that I wanted to portray those two events, which was super specific, not really dramatic, um, but sort of like lightheartedly and, and realistically. Right after college then. So, I mean, uh, to whatever extent you're comfortable, I am curious. It's like you have like different side hustles and stuff for money yeah. while you're out of college. So I'm kind of curious when you were starting out with acting, you had some professional doors open, but like what kind of other things were you doing to uh, make money? Yeah, I did a lot. I was a dog walker. That was a really great side hustle. Um, I, you know, babysat. I did a lot of voiceover and that really helped. I still do voiceover because um, that's just like acting, but you get to do it without worrying about how you look. Um, I worked the early shift at a gym desk, you know, getting there at like 4.45 a.m. I think those were the big ones. And then just like weird little acting side gigs all over the place that your agency may say like, hey, we have this weird corporate event. If you want to go like stand at a desk and hand out things and you have a short script that you memorize and and a, a bunch of weird oh, things like that. Yeah. Oh, my cat is making an appearance. <laughs> just the tail. It's always just, just the, the tail. tail. Of course. Yeah. Just making her presence slightly known. Uh, yeah. Okay. That's, that's also super interesting that like a corporate event would think of acting as that skill set. Oh my God. The weirdest job I ever had. And I, it's, it's blood money. I'm still ashamed that I took this job <laughs> is no. for, for Philip Morris. They, you know, which is a cigarette company. They would have actors come in and role play with their executives. And so you would learn this text and then you would train the executives on how to respond to certain things. And, and it was so bizarre. Like I think of some actors from the city who I loved, who I did this gig with, and we had to fly somewhere. I don't even remember where and stay at this hotel and then go to this huge convention the next day and do this like skit for the executives where we were pretending to be them. And it was all about like selling cigarettes in a purse pack that was supposed to look cute for like women and girls. And I think back on that, I'm like, I'm that's, that was terrible money that I did that <laughs> gig. <laughs> trying to convince executives, you know, showing executives how to sell their life destroying product to young people. But I was also, it's one of those things I would never do that now, but I was so young at the time. And I just like needed money that I took the gig. But there's a bunch of weird, if you're an actor, there's a bunch of weird stuff that your agent will call and be like, hey, do you want to come do this trade show? <laughs> um, when you did all those side hustles, then like, how'd you kind of find your way into being a nanny from doing the side hustles, like going from that blood money to being a nanny? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there's a really nice network of young actors who just help each other in terms of, hey, this gig is opening up, do you want it? And so 
I had a friend who was babysitting for a family across the hall from the family that I eventually would go on to babysit for. And she recommended me for it. And I went in and I met the family and I loved them so much and did that for a couple of years on and off. And now it's so bizarre because the mom saw St. Francis, she saw the movie and she wrote to me and she was like, oh my God, this is, I can't believe you did this. This is so nice. She was, she, she really liked it. I was sort of worried that, cause it's, it's based on them very, very loosely, but there's so much fiction involved. I'm always worried that people are gonna see something and think, is that a depiction of me? And it wasn't, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's, I would say Chicago actors, especially, and it's probably this way in New York and LA too, that they, they're really generous when it comes to offering up side hustles that, that they've enjoyed to other people. By the time you wrote St. Francis, was that, I guess, so like late twenties is when you're like nannying and acting. Mm-hmm. Um, like St. Francis is also late twenties or is that more? No, that, so that was in my early thirties. Yeah. That I started writing and it was sort of, yeah, it was sort of daunting because I was like, am I too old <laughs> to start doing this thing? I'm so but it, glad you didn't say yes to that. Or yeah. Like- <laughs> Isn't it bizarre though? I feel like we have this, these arbitrary expiration dates that culturally people have put on us or that we put on ourselves of like, well, if you haven't done it by now, you probably can't do it. And, and yeah, I'm really glad that I was like, no, I'm, I'm pretty young and I have a lot of time to figure this out. And yeah. So I started writing that in You're my early from zero either. That's right. Yeah, yeah, it's it's building on it's it is complementary. It's a complementary skill set. And so building on something that I knew how to do and then sort of traversing this new ground of being like, what's what is story structure? Yeah. <laughs> how, how do you do that? You said, right, you were intimidated a bit because you didn't go to school for writing specifically. Yeah. How did you go about learning about story structure? I'm basically still trying to put myself through film school and through writing school. And so I watch Every day I watch a lot of interviews with writers who I love. So I watched interviews with Kenneth Lonergan and watch interviews with Greta Gerwig and and I read screenplays just to learn. Um, I'll usually read a couple of screenplays a week just to see the mechanics of how did this person, you know, it, it seems so effortless when you see the final product and you kind of have to work backwards and be like, how did they make this thing so brilliant? And so... I'm I'm trying to do my own version of film school with a lot of help from people along the way, including you, you know, like I'm I'm still asking you questions when it comes to us collaborating yeah. um, and talking about sound. And, and the thing that I've discovered is early on, I was trying to pretend like I knew more than I did. I was trying, I would go in and people would say something I didn't understand. And I'd be like, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, totally. And what, I, what I've learned is it's so much better to just come from a place of vulnerability and say, I have no idea what that word means. Can you just tell me what that means? And to say, yeah. I'm still a beginner. You're the, ex, you're the expert. Like, tell me your vision. Tell me what you think. And then once we break it down in that way, then I do start to have opinions. Then it is much easier to communicate Um, So I'm trying to just come from that beginner's mindset and that growth mindset and just say, how can I acquire all of these skills with the help of my much more experienced, talented collaborators? Yeah, I mean, that's what I love about film is you can dedicate your whole life to one area and then you're just like dead in the water without 20 other people who've also dedicated their whole life to one area. Yeah. Yeah, and it's so nice. Like I realized just very recently, I was like, oh yeah, you don't have to know everything. And that's so nice 
that you're sharing the weight of this project and you're sharing the ownership and the creation with so many people who are so skilled. The freedom in that is is really lovely. Awesome. So so I guess, yeah, because that, that's one of my questions, sort of like what that collaboration looks like for you then. So it seems that you do um, like to share that control to some extent with your collaborators. I really do. I, I don't know how people... You know, when I hear about the sort of auteurs who do everything, I'm like, that seems like a lot of work. Like, that seems, <laughs> that seems too exhausting to have to, you know, to, to be sort of the arbiter of every single choice. And I feel much more comfortable. And I think it's because I'm coming from a really collaborative skill set, which is acting, that you're just constantly on a team, you're constantly feeding off of each other, that for me, it's, it feels so good when it's truly collaborative. And so now I'm starting to build this little family of collaborators that I really trust. And so I can turn to Nate, the DP and be like, well, here's how I want it to feel. How do you feel about that? And how do we execute that? Um, oh, <laughs> I see even, another, another I cat. <laughs> Um, I, I love hearing how you're putting yourself through film school and like teaching yourself that way. I mean, uh, it's kind of what we've talked about before, like how you've um, looked at other people's work and like see it as like a masterpiece, but like, you know, it's gone through like so many different revisions and like, how do you sort of put that in perspective? Do you ever write, um, you write the first draft of something like St. Francis and you look at it and you're like, this is garbage. Like, but like, how do you like put it into perspective of like, it's just the first draft. Yeah, I, I think that takes, at least for me, it takes a lot of practice in doing that. You sort of have to get comfortable sitting with your own mediocrity, which is really hard. It's really difficult. But I, in watching all of those interviews, like I just saw something that Michaela Cole for I May Destroy You, that there was something like 192 drafts for her scripts for that TV show. And I was talking to somebody and they were like, oh my God, that's so many. And I, I felt so relieved. Because I was like, okay, it's not like things are handed down from above and they just, you know, they flow out of you and it's genius. Yeah. Because I think sometimes that is the perception, at least it was for me. And so as I started hearing from more and more of these, you know, the greats in my eyes about how many revisions they do and how long it takes them. When I was reading about Manchester by the Sea and I heard that Kenneth Lonergan wrote many, many drafts before he discovered that working with time and flashbacks was the key, was the way in. And that people write, you yeah. know, 300 pages of a script that will eventually be, you know, a hundred. Or he said he wrote probably thousands of pages that would eventually become like a hundred and something pages. I was like, okay, so there's nothing wrong with me. And I think that's been something that I had to learn over and over again is, oh, this is the way it is for everybody. There's nothing wrong with me that when I sit down and write that first draft, I read it over again and think, well, nobody should ever see this. Like that's the norm, but I didn't know that. And so after, you know, when I wrote the first draft of St. Francis, it was like 180 pages and it was a very slow process of whittling away, having discussions. I had several table reads with the actors and that's really humiliating too, because then I don't know if you feel this way, but like people eventually have to read the thing that you're working on, or they have to listen to the thing that you're working on. And it can feel very vulnerable to say, I know this isn't done. It's, it's just a step in the process, but now we need to like engage with it. Yeah. <laughs> it's so vulnerable, but they, it's a real 
practice, I will say it's become easier. I've started to look at things more objectively and say, oh, I really like this line out of this entire scene. And so I'm just going to take this line and work on it and work from there. And you become less precious. Because I think in the beginning, at least for me, I sort of had this scarcity mindset of, well, this is all I can do. Like, this is all I can write. What if it's just garbage? And then you'd learn like, well, just delete everything you don't like and you'll come up with some other shit, (laughs) you know? And so it's, it's being less precious and it's having the discipline to look at your own work objectively, which is really hard. Um, With the theory of vision process, I'm wondering what that kind of looks like with the economics of things, with art for better or worse, we have like deadlines. And so that can like go really um, against the grain with the revision. Yeah. You deal with that. Well, it's so interesting. I mean, I was not paid, of course, to write St. Francis and I got feedback from very few people. It was really according to like, okay, we've picked a start date. So the script just has to be done being revised by then. But there was also so much freedom because I wasn't answering to that many people. Now for the first time I'm getting paid to write And this is not on the feature that Alex and I are going to co-direct. This is through something else. Um, But I'm co-writing with another screenwriter and we're getting paid. And the process is so different. Like we had to have an entire treatment and we got paid to commence writing on the treatment and then on delivering the treatment. And then we go through an intense note session with the production company that we're working for. And then, you know, we have, we get paid to start the first draft and then to deliver the first draft. And the, the notes are again, so intense that it's, they're again, two very different beasts. And I'm still in the process of adapting to that because there's a part of me that's from this indie world. That's very like, well, I don't like that note. Or, or that's like, you know, that's it's like, well, I don't, I don't think it should be that way. And it's, it's sort of learning how to pick your battles and realize that you are being paid to do something. And so it's very different than when you write a spec script. Um, So I'm trying to find the freedom and the joy within that very different process because I also want to make money. (laughs) Um, Just like with uh, Manchester by the Sea, like the key was the flashbacks and that didn't even like show up apparently until so many drops. Was there a key for St. Francis that you stumbled upon? You know, it and I couldn't even articulate this until later, but it's sort of an instinctual way. I knew that it was always going to be about shame and healing and showing things in a really graphic way. And so, or anytime I would have the thought of like, I don't think I should show that thing. It became, oh, that's the thing we have to show. Oh yeah, cool. <laughs> you know what I mean? That it was like anytime I was like, oh, that would be really embarrassing to to show that part of this process. And then it was like everything that I felt shame for as a person just thinking about writing it, it was like, oh, but that's the thing that has to be shown because that's the thing that's been kept off screen for so long. And so I would say, yeah, that pit in my stomach of like, well, I can't reveal that part of it, or we can't put that on screen that it was like, ding, ding. (laughs) That's what we should be going after. So so one thing is like, since you're writing it and acting it, there's this kind of, um, you have to have a healthy amount of ego or like confidence in yourself, right? To have written something and um, like decide, like, I want to make this bring other people on and like have this whole structure behind it. Part of the reason I fall into film sound is I give creative input, but like stay in the, stay in the back and like help other people. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I was just wondering what that looked like for you. Like maybe it's like 
a bit of like an emotional journey, maybe not, or it's just something you've always had. It does. I mean, part of that is just piggybacking on the confidence of my collaborators, truly, because Alex Thompson, who directed the film and is my creative partner and my life partner, I, I truly don't think, and this feels very anti-feminist to, to say, but I truly don't think I would have had the, the resources or the confidence without him saying like, we just got to make it. Like, we have to just go make this thing. And I think I would have gotten there eventually, but it's really helpful to have somebody who, because it's not their story, because it's not so revealing of them, can take the ball and, and run it farther down the court. Um, also, I had no, I was operating from a place of freedom because I truly didn't think anybody would see it. And so it's one thing if you're making something and you're like, oh, and we're working with a big budget and there are expectations with this thing. But with this, I was like, I mean, maybe somebody will watch it on their laptop. Like maybe the, they're in, the investors will watch it on their laptop. And Alex had much, <laughs> you know, bigger plans and dreams for it. But I was sort of like, nobody's going to, nobody's going to see this. It's fine. And so there was this sense of liberation that came with that. And then also there was a sense of like, I have auditioned for so many terrible movies, like so many offensively bad scripts that it's like, if those schmucks can go and make this thing and have actors audition for it and it's offensively bad. It has like a million dollar budget or something. Exactly. <laughs> that's like, well, this maybe is not the best thing that's ever been written, but I, I should make it too. And I think that that's, sometimes I wonder if that's something that women and people of color struggle with is like, we're so scared that we're going to fail and that that will be, you know, that that will be proof that we shouldn't be given these shots that we like stop ourselves before we even begin. Um, because sometimes I feel this responsibility of like, well, it has to be good. Yeah. And I think that's really, I understand why it happens. And I also think it's something that we really have to fight in ourselves. I'm constantly saying, I just want the privilege of being able to be mediocre and it not painting a picture and people not assuming, oh, okay, well that's, you know, she messed up once or she created something that's mediocre once. And so that's, that's indicative of how she's going to be where I feel like, you know, traditionally with a lot of straight white men, it's sort of like, if they have a mediocre moment, they're like, but look at the potential, look at the brilliance. And like, we just have to throw more money at him next time. <laughs> <laughs> and he'll make something really great. Yeah. <laughs> gotta, gotta throw more money at it. Yeah. 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 It, it, he'll be fine. That was a fluke. I'm always worried that, yeah, with women and people of color, that our flukes are the things that people will then latch on to and be like, see, that's what happens when we give them shots. But that, you know, who knows how much of that is in my head. And so it's this internal battle all the time of being like, no, I, I deserve to make something too. And then not letting yourself get crushed by like, expectation of what you want it to be yeah well you actually submitted saint francis to a, a screenplay fest right or like a yeah yeah it was the slam dance screenplay competition and i remember submitting it and then finances started to come together finances came together for saint francis pretty fast and so we were already in pre-production by the time i found out that my screenplay had not made it even past the first round yeah and it got really negative feedback from the person reading the script. They were like, some important issues here, but the execution is off. And, and I remember they gave me really weird formatting notes. They were like, you really shouldn't describe how a character is feeling in the stage directions. And just 
I was so happy that when I got that feedback, we were already making the movie. Yeah. Because in my head, I got to sort of like quietly be like, thank you, F you, I'm over here making the thing. Yeah. And I think it's just, you can't pin your hopes and dreams on one person who's been given this power to say you're good or bad. There, there is just taste involved too. Yeah, I remember I just looked up. So I loved the movie Promising Young Woman. And it had been on the blacklist a couple of years before it, before it was made. And I saw this blog from years ago where some person had read the script and they were just ripping it apart. This was before the movie was made. And they were talking about how terrible it was. Again, that there were some interesting ideas, but the execution was so awful. And it was so funny to be reading that, knowing that it was an Oscar winning yeah. movie. And it just makes, you know, every time I encounter something like that, I just like, it gives me so much glee because I'm like, that person tried to tear her down, tried to, you know, tear Emerald Fennell down. And she was already making her thing. She probably has never read that thing. Oh, but yeah. like, how wrong was that person proven to be? It just, it gives me a lot of like petty joy. It's funny. <laughs> when, I, when I was at Northwestern and, um, in like sound class, we would always like give each other feedback. I was always super tempted to find some really obscure but renowned work of sound and like just bring it in and put it on the screen and pretend it was mine and see the feedback of like, well, I think that it could have been like this or like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, before it's been deemed a work of genius that everybody has some opinion on it. Yeah, and then could you talk a little bit more about when it's time to make a film, like how do you make that happen, I guess? That is very much a thing that requires initiative on your part, right? I guess to like yeah. the funding and the people. Well, for me, it was finding the right people. Um, and it was also saying, okay, here's what we have to work with. Like I think so many people wait, like they think, okay, this, this movie needs a budget of a million dollars. And so they end up spending years trying to amass that million dollars rather than being like, what, what's the smallest amount we can make this on? And that's not a forever plan because you want to pay your collaborators. Um, but you find people who are just as passionate about the project. And Alex was just as passionate. And Nate, the DP, he loved the script from the beginning. All the actors were friends of mine. I think that was another part of it was we didn't go after famous people. I was like, none of us here are famous. The most famous person was Jim Trufrost, who was on The Wire. But other than that, we're like no names, but there are people who I had worked with in the Chicago theater community and I knew they were really good and I wrote specific parts for them. And so much of it was looking around and being like, what is within our reach and how can we make this quickly in a way that feels good to us? And so, yes, our budget originally, you know, was planned to be 30,000 and eventually I think all told was like 125,000, which is still very, very low for film. Um, but we just found our team that we wanted to work with. We went to private investors because we didn't want to have to wait on grants. We just were like, how can we make this as speedy and scrappy as possible? Yeah. And not be tempted by all the things that people tell you you need to have, which are like big deal producers, a lot of money, famous actors. And you shot it in like your apartment too, like a lot of it, right? So many of the locations, yeah. So my apartment in the movie was Alex and my real apartment. Um, we had no hair and makeup. Uh, my boyfriend character in the film, that was his real apartment. We're all wearing our real clothes. There was no wardrobe person. It was actually like a real asset to the film, I think, because when people watch it, they say, they say, oh, this seems so real. 
And we're like, well, yeah, it's our real apartment. It's not an apartment dressed to look like an apartment. And so I think it does have this very lived in feel. You're listening to The Pursuit, the podcast produced by the Junior Board of the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences, Chicago Midwest Chapter. I'm John Owens, the Natus Chicago Midwest President. And just a reminder, our annual Emmy Awards take place on Sunday, December 5th at 7 p.m. And we're pleased to have the great comedian Pat McGann back as our host. And we'll have presenters representing all eight markets in our great chapter. We're proud to have World Business Chicago as our sponsor for this year's event. The event's virtual this year due to concerns about the pandemic, but we're really hoping to be back live with you again next year for all of our awards events. Meantime, look for this year's awards show on our website. That's chicagoemmyonline.org. And it's also available on YouTube and the Emmys app. And now back to the pursuit. Yeah, just give me a sec. I'll, I'll just yeah, edit yeah. this down. It's fine. <laughs> I'm just admiring your mic. Oh, I see. Yeah, I, I have like a, a nice little a gooseneck thing. Oh, very nice. It's not the best mic in the world, but I like found it two minutes away on Facebook Marketplace. I use this for a lot of rounding, actually. Like a lot of the, I did the footsteps in um, a Foley pit. Yeah. But there's like lots of places where he's like, like flipping around note cards and stuff. So I was just chilling at my desk with like an envelope. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> with this mic. So it really did the job. Um, I, that's one of my favorite things when I find out like the, the like not highbrow way that things can get done. In oh, movie yeah. making that it's like yeah you can literally be sitting there with like paper and it sounds great the paper sounded so good i was like <laughs> yeah um i think we could talk a little bit about my summer vacation then because uh sure. um when did you start writing my summer vacation and um what inspired you to write that yeah so i started writing that sort of weirdly um right before the pandemic started and I, I, I start a lot of things that never become anything. Like I, I have so many scripts that are like 50 pages long or, or even a hundred pages long. And I'm like, maybe it'll never become anything at all. And I had sort of like tried to write a couple of shorts and I started writing it because Alex and I took a trip to Pompeii. We went there and we visited it and it's really haunting. And I also just remember how creepy it is to see all these tourists there, us being tourists included, that like people are taking selfies in front of these bodies. And it's this, you know, incredibly tragic event. And so I was like, something in me just was like, oh, it'd be so weird to hear like a kid give a presentation on something so dark, you know, something that happened while they went on this vacation during summer. And then I don't know how you feel about this, but like the climate crisis is just, I'm just like always thinking about it, just always panicking about it. And when the Australian wildfires happened, it really, really disturbed me. And now it feels like we're sort of becoming equally numbed and horrified by it. Like we're like, oh, another one, but okay, moving on. And just this feeling of like doom that I, that I feel. And I think a lot of people feel. And so it came out of that, of just this idea of like, what if this girl is giving a presentation about how all these people in Pompeii died because of this thing that had been building up for years and that they knew that eventually it was going to erupt. And, you know, it was mostly the poor people and the slaves who weren't able to get out in time. And I was like, well, that's going to be the way it happens with climate change. It's, it makes this sound very dark. It's actually like a very, I hope it's a very funny short, but it was coming, it was coming out of that place just 
being like, I want to do something sort of different than St. Francis, but also employing humor the way that I did in St. Francis. And then also the thing that made me actually want to make it was Alex and I are going to direct this feature coming up that I've written. And I was like, oh, I've never directed anything before. Like I've never directed film before. And it feels huge to step into co-directing a feature. And I don't want to just rely on Alex. And so I was like, I just need to make this. And see what it's like to truly be the director. And so I worked with all of the same people from St. Francis. Nate was the DP, you know, Alex Wilson was the AD and there are actors in it who are from St. Francis and- Yeah, caught Ramona and- uh, Yeah, and yeah. Hannah. And so it was, it was an, another example of me just being like, well, I just got to try. I just got to do it. And to try to be more focused on the process rather than the product. Yeah. What well, is like a, it is like a really beautiful short. And like, I do love that idea of like a, like a practice round or like a practice. Yeah. Round. yeah. And I, it's another like, example of me putting myself through film school of being like students get to make shorts in film school. So I just got to, I have to just make the short and not worry about it being perfect. And is there anything that you feel you learned from doing this practice run? I learned so much. I, I mean, I could talk about it all day, but uh, one of the biggest things that I learned is just casting is everything. Like, I think I cast the right people. And so I think so much of the film rests on them. And I mean, honestly, the thing that I learned is like the collaborators that you pick are going to make the movie. And so you know, while I look at the script and I think, well, it could have been better. Or I even, you know, look at moments of my direction. And I'm like, well, I didn't get that. Um, it's kind of amazing the ways that your collaborators can come in and elevate things and make it better than it was on the day. Um, but, you know, I, I learned so much about just like film language because coming from a theater background, you don't learn what it's, you sort of have this proscenium frame in your head all the time. And my summer vacation is an interesting combination of the two because she's sort of giving this theatrical performance. You know, she's giving this performance in front of the class and her classmates come up and they perform in this theatrical way. But how do you translate that on film? How do you use film language to sort of capture a theatrical performance? Yeah, because film is like inherently like multiple camera angles and like all this stuff that isn't what a theater is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I feel like I, I really learned about like, I mean, it sounds so basic, but like why we chose the aspect ratio we did and and then just learning everything about post-production too. I mean, with you and involved that it's like, how how do we continue to tell this story using all of these elements that we have to play with? And so I feel like I'm just like centers in my brain are lighting up that have never lit up before. I guess it's what happens, I guess, when, yeah, you have to like kind of control or not control everything, but like, yeah, I don't know what the word is. I guess directing is the word, but um... that's right. That's right. Yeah. And also just and I keep trying to tell myself, like, it's OK not to know. That's that's like why you can have a vision, you can have instincts, but it's also really rewarding to like come to you, Nahar, and be like, well, what do you think this should sound like? And what happens if we bring in more of this like magical world throughout? Yeah. Um, I find that to be, again, really liberating and exciting. 
That's cool. That's actually some of the best advice I'd ever gotten as a sound designer was that a big part of your job is like emotional support too. Because like, <laughs> like with, with sound, like the film is getting like finished, right? Like of course the color comes in too. And that's like very, very important. Yeah. Uh, and you know what's funny is I haven't gotten to that point in the process. So I'm still sort of like, oh, I kind of know what color, but I'm going to find that out very soon in the way that I'm finding out exactly what you're talking about, that sound is at a very specific point in the process. Like they, and they so, print and it's like done and there's just like a whole emotional thing that goes along with that and like that's right a good sound designer can help <laughs> help with that <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely and and then can just I mean really I've learned so much about you can make a story come alive in so many different it's not just supporting the story it's like an active part of yeah. telling the story I do you feel like that's something I'm going to take away is in the beginning, when I was just writing scripts before I was directing, I wasn't thinking because I hadn't had the experience of knowing what's possible with sound and knowing what's possible through the post process. And so now when I write a script, I'm already thinking about it differently. I'm thinking about it like, oh, and what what is it going to sound like from yeah. the screenplay stage? It's interesting because this last feature that I wrote, not St. Francis, but the one that we're doing next I still haven't been paid to write that, but producers came on. And so I've done many, many revisions and have taken a lot of feedback. And it's it's a learning curve of figuring out which notes are you want to actually take. And I don't know if you feel that way in, in your work too, but there are some times that you're like, I can't even tell which notes are good. You know, there's like the instinct yeah. sometimes of like, I know this is a good note or I know this one isn't. And then there's a lot of gray in the middle about being like, whose feedback do you take and what is the right note to take yeah i get I, for me for me since my work is still like support oriented in general like i'm very it's, it's interesting because it's not like you want to be totally the customer is always right yeah uh, um and like the way I've, I've seen it explained is like it's like the same way that like a doctor patient relationship almost like the patient isn't always right like you're trying to get someone else's expertise so you're actually trying to pay someone to disagree with you that's right yeah and to interrogate the choices yeah and yeah it's you're exactly right that the doctor has the expertise and so even if the patient is like oh, I don't think I need chemo I think I just need acupuncture that it's like <laughs> <laughs> you sure I think you're going to be unhappy with that choice down the line yeah. and so yeah having that level of expertise and then just learning how to communicate and I think that's something that's so interesting about, you know, what we do is we're communicating with so many different personalities that it's like you learn each person's language in a way. And once you're able to talk, to speak that, that it becomes much easier. Yeah. For me, I think like with, with um, rounding, it was very lucky that I had like, I guess the creative control that I did or like the creative contributions that I did because because it was from the indie world, I guess. Yeah, that's right. It's very interesting because I've been like actually trying to put myself in the back seat more because like I am really at the start of my career and, and in sound like, um, which and I, I do like it, like the uh, sort of notion that you're, you're like an apprentice and you really are like yeah. and, and like you're really supposed to just kind of sit, stay back and like watch and learn. Huh. Uh, until you start sort of earned your stripes and I do really like that about the field um okay it, like takes the pressure off a bit for one and like I, I do like the humility behind it but yeah it's been very interesting to like make that transition of um with my summer vacation I've like tried very hard to um like I wanted to go one way with it or another way with it and I was just like Tom like what are we doing like <laughs> tell me tell that's, me what we're doing that's so interesting because from my point of view I'm like I would love to let, you know, and I think it's because I do come from a collaborative place of being like, what do you actually think? Like, what are your opinions? And let's try it. Let's, let's just go with it and see what it's like. 
Um, it makes, there are so many professions where it's like, you have to pay your dues and you have to sit back. But I also think young people have some of the best, obviously most creative and innovative ideas in the world. And so I'm also like, well, I wish there was a way to have more voice, even in those supportive roles. Yeah. It's like a tricky thing to navigate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm sure I felt that so much as a young actor and still do sometimes. I remember after, so the weekend after we shot my summer vacation, which is the first time that I had been in that director mindset, the next morning I had a voiceover and usually I go in and you're, you know, you hear the client in your headphones and they just, you give them exactly what you want. And because my director brain was turned on in my head, I was directing my own voiceover where I was like, I would do a take and I'd be like, actually, I think I need to do one that's a little more quieter or whatever it was. And I had to be like, oh, wait, am I, should I like take a step back here? And, and finding the balance between bringing your expertise and also realizing your role. At the mix for rounding, I think Alex did a very, like knowing his film and having like a strong sense of what he wanted to do with sound, but like letting Tom sort of yeah. take the reins a bit with it. Yeah. 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 I think that's the way it should be because what's the point? Like Tom's so brilliant. I can't imagine a director coming in and being like, okay, and now you're going to execute my vision exactly. And you get no input because then it's, you're wasting this incredible resource. Um. Awesome. So I think with just like, I guess we have a first question we ask everyone. We have like a last question we ask everyone. I mean, I think everything you've, you've said has been amazing advice and just a master class <laughs> in like making things happen. But um, yeah, I think like what advice would you have for people who are starting out in uh, writing and acting? Uh, yeah, I would say if you have any sort of little voice in your head that's putting barriers in front of yourself to just tell that little voice to kindly step away um, while you make some big choices and take some big risks. And to also know that life is long. Like that's something that I'm really coming to is that it's, it's a marathon and it's not a sprint. And I remember when I was in my early twenties and I just got out of school, even though I was getting some jobs, I had so much fear and borderline panic <laughs> about what I was going to do and the timeline that I had given myself to do it on. And I just remember not experiencing as much joy as I could have because I was so desperately worried. And I think that's of course, that's of course natural because you, you come out of the gate and you want to do everything all at once and you want to be a success right away. And I would say me not having the path that I thought I was going to have really gave me something incredible because I think if I had just gotten a lot of success just as an actor, maybe I never would have started writing and it has given me this whole other thing. And so to be patient with yourself, to be kind with yourself, but also to be bold in the risks that you take. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> What's some advice you would give? Me? Yeah, you're in the trenches with them, just to other people starting out. I, I will just disclaim that I, I am a baby, but... Yeah. Um, <laughs> but... Um, I think like the, one of the things I've learned so far is just like reaching out, which seems like kind of yeah. dumb, but I, I think that like so many things are just like lightning striking. Like, I think rounding was like lightning striking. And so it's like, you never really know like which thing is going to be the thing you get. So like, I, yeah. think, I think it's honestly what you said too about, you don't want to like put all your dreams on like one person yes. um, since the probability for a lot of things is so low. You just have to give as many chances as you can. You're so right. And, and to not be embarrassed about it and to not be sort of like harnessed by yourself. Like 
what you're saying is a really good example of. So when we were at Skywalker, um, I, you know, I was too scared to approach Tom about working on, and you all about working on my summer vacation, but he had like asked Alex about it twice. He was like, Kelly did a short, like maybe we could work on it. And Alex came home and he was like, you got to talk to Tom about that. And I was like, no, I have no money. Like they're so good. Like they won't want to do it. And he was like, what are you doing? Like, just ask. (laughs) They'll say no, if they don't want to do it, you have to trust people to say no. And so I think that's totally right. That it's like, just reach out and trust that if people don't want to do it, that they'll say no, but don't say no to yourself first. Yeah. Like in order to make that work, what I've learned is like to not undervalue myself too. Yes. Um, yeah. Just like knowing that you have like value is like so important. Yeah. Right? Both because professionally it matters, but also just for yourself, it matters to know that. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. To know that you're worth it. I think that's great advice. I don't think you being young means you, I think it means you have a lot to say actually about what you're currently going through and what you're currently learning and, and, and experiencing. Well, it's one of the things that occurred to me in college too, is like, it's, it's very funny that like this PhD is like teaching this intro class. You, you know? I think yes. it might be a little bit different because of how mentor based it is, but it actually kind of makes sense, I guess, to have like level two teach level one and level three teach level two kind of. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny how that works. And it's like, yeah, sometimes we think that we have to like go to the mountaintop and see the like the genius. And it's like, no, there are people along the path who can be like, oh, by the way, who've learned some things. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And to everybody out there trying. um, Yeah, I think just like keep going and you'll find a path, even if it's not the one you envision. You can cut that. (laughs) No, no, that's where I'm going to end it. That was great. Thanks so much to Kelly O'Sullivan for being on the podcast. She's truly a masterclass in figuring out how to make things happen, regardless of the disadvantages you may feel you're at. Thanks for listening to today's episode. This has been The Pursuit, a Natus Junior Board podcast. 